specifically, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He's divine, and that He is the, what? Is that the way it says it? We may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in His name. And so, you remember the first sign that was given in chapter 2? What was the first sign? That Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, who is the divine Son of God. The first sign was what? In chapter 2, Jesus turned the water into wine at the wedding of this couple in Cana of Galilee. What's the second sign? You remember in chapter what? You remember the second sign? How many remember the second sign? Say it, Nick. Go ahead. Chapter 4, the healing of the officers or noblemen's son. Remember that? The healing of this child. What about the third sign? Where is the third sign? In what chapter? Oh, chapter 5. And it was the healing again of the man at the pool of... Bethesda, a man who has been unable to walk for, what, 38 years? He's a cripple. And so you remember Jesus asked him, do you want to be well? I mean, do you want to walk? Do you want to get over this? Do you want me to minister to you? And so those are the three signs already that we've discussed. Today in chapter 6, as we begin chapter 6, we'll find that there are two signs in chapter 6. The first one this morning and the next one we'll talk about the next time we come back here. And that will be... This morning, the feeding of the 5,000 men. So there are about fifteen to 20,000 folks out there on the side of the hill because the men have their wives and their children and, you know, all their relatives and so on. So we're talking about a whole lot of folks here being fed. That's the first sign. And then the second sign follows immediately. Remember when the disciples are on the water and in the middle of the night and all of this is happening and it's not a great night to be outside on the water and Jesus comes walking across the water to them. So those will be the two signs in chapter 6. So let's be a people who remember specifically what John is talking about and can retain this and use these issues as John does as we share the gospel. Because all of these signs point to the most important issue that we can have. That Jesus is the Christ. That He is the Son of God. And that believing these signs that point to Him, who He is and how He is and what He's done, we can believe and have life in His name. Because the Holy Spirit will use these signs to engender revelation, engender truth, and engender receptivity on the parts of those to whom we share. Amen? So this is the fourth sign. This is years, years later. Israel has been delivered out of Egypt. They've gone through the wilderness. They've moved into the promised land. God has promised great and mighty things. Remember, Israel fell into idolatry. The ten tribes of Israel were were taken away in 721 by the Assyrians leaving just the tribe of Judah and a few pieces of the tribe of Simeon and Benjamin. And then the Israelites now who have been reduced to essentially one tribe and a couple of pieces of others 
are now continuing in the same kinds of sins and rebellion against God. And then finally, in 586, Nebuchadnezzar brings in the army and reduces Jerusalem to rubble and takes off the congregation of Israel into 70 years of captivity. They're in captivity all those years, and then they've been released from captivity, remember? 536, the Persians under Darius come in, the Persians and the Medes, they free the people of Israel, and they go back home, and they're living at home under the Persian Empire, experiencing some freedom. They rebuild the temple under Zerubbabel, remember, rebuilding the walls under Nehemiah. And then they have a period of actual independent rule under the Maccabees. And then, of course, Rome rears its head and conquers Israel. And at the time of the writing of these Gospels, the people of God, the people of promise, the people of God's possession, the people of God's kindness, the people of God's love, are under Roman domination. What is the question they would have been asking themselves? Where is the Lord's promise of compassion? Where is the Lord's delivering power? Where is He? He said He would do it. And we've been waiting and waiting and praying and praying. Where is the compassion of God for us? And then a man appears. A man appears. A man who begins to exhibit great ability in signs and in wonders. A man appears preaching a word that amazes the people and captures their hearts and begins to share with them the things of God that they have never heard shared that way and of that substance. A man appears who has never preached before and a man appears who now is sharing and expressing or displaying the compassion of God that no one has ever displayed and expressed before. Finally, there is a man here. Could this be he? Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the King, the Savior? Could this be that man? And so, as we read these verses this morning... Let's read them within the context of 4,000 years of history of Israel having been promised continually from the very beginning in Abraham and having it come to a place of such subjugation under Rome. And then they experience what we read this morning. And let us read it with their mindset and imagine what it would have been saying to them. And imagine what would have been going through their minds as they are out on the hillside. So chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. And after these things, after the things in chapter 5, and Jesus has left and come on over to Galilee. Things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up into the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover of the feast of the Jews was near. 
Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test Philip, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. And Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive even a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many people? And Jesus said, had the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also with the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. <coughs> so they gathered them up and lifted and filled 12 baskets full with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Ah, therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, truly, this is the prophet, the Messiah, the Savior, the King who is to come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to a mountain to be alone. Father, this morning, show us your heart through Jesus Christ. Father, penetrate us this morning. And Father, not only show us and reveal to us, but Father, form your heart into us in a greater way than ever before, that as we leave today, we may be people of the heart of God in a greater and more compelling way and effectively for the gospel as we have ever been before. Father, do a wonderful, enormous work of grace in our midst as you are always liking to do. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the fourth sign. And as we look at this fourth sign, there's just so much here, so much here we could talk about. Let's see what this sign shows us about John's purpose. Remember, I've written these signs. I've recorded them that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So this sign must say something about the person and work of Christ. So what does it show us? I believe the first thing that this sign shows us, and the most important thing... The most significant thing that this and every sign shows us is this. And let's make sure we always remember this. The most significant issue in the Bible and the revelation of the gospel is the divinity of Jesus Christ. He is God the Son. So the most significant thing is about God always. 
Every time we open this Bible of ours, the first thing and the most fundamental thing that God is after and that we should be after is, what does the passage reveal about God? So let's make sure we approach the Bible for God's purpose to reveal Him to us. So it shows us that Jesus is divine. You remember what Jesus said in John 5, 19. He says, whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. In other words, I am doing the very same things that my Father does. And you remember when we talked about those verses a few weeks ago, that only God can do God work. And Jesus is saying, I am doing God work. I'm not just doing some things. I am doing the, e- the very same things that God the Father is doing. And so you see, Jesus is feeding the people just as God fed them in the wilderness. Do you remember the wilderness journey? The people recognize that. The people recognize that when Jesus blessed the food and the food began to be distributed, they recognized that from Exodus chapter 16. Remember in Exodus chapter 16, they had murmured that we ain't got no bread around here. We're going to starve to death. Why did you bring us out here, Moses? And Moses cries unto the Lord, and the Lord begins to rain down what? Manna, bread from heaven to them. And as Jesus begins to pass the loaves out, and as the people begin to see the multiplication of this bread, they begin immediately to recognize this is the same kind of work that God did for our forefathers in the wilderness. They recognize this as a supernatural act. They are beginning to recognize that Jesus is just not another prophet. He is the prophet that Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy. And I will give you a prophet, and he will be that one who will deliver my people. This is what they're seeing. This is what they are experiencing. They know that this is a supernatural act. And they begin to have revelation that this is not just another prophet, but this some kind of way we don't understand how. This man is God some kind of way to us and for us. You see, they're kind of getting it, don't you see? Now, they don't do well with it all the times, but they're beginning to see that Jesus just isn't another preacher on the, on the, uh, on the scene. So the people recognize this. How do we know that? Look at verse 15 in chapter 6. Look at verse 15. Jesus, therefore, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force. Remember, verse 14 says, we're getting up and we're going to move on this man. We're going to make him king. To make him king withdrew again to the mountain. Why? Because they recognize that this is not just another prophet, but that this is the prophet from God himself. So you see, this sign, first of all, shows us the divinity of Jesus, that this is God himself feeding his people on that day as he fed his people for 40 years in the wilderness from heaven. In fact, Jesus will explicate this further on into the chapter, and we'll get into some of those verses later. We will skip a whole lot of that kind of issue today because we'll be moving into those issues later on. Secondly... The sign not only shows he's divine. By the way, have you noticed that there are some blanks on your pages? How many of you noticed that? Now, that's not the blanking of an old man who forgot to type it out. What I asked Evan to do, Evan May is the editor of the notes, and he gives you what you have. And thank you very much, Evan. You're doing a wonderful job on this. 
And so, if you would, hopefully you're taking a pen and writing something into your notes. You know, it's the old school teacher. Take notes. Right, Phil? You know, you know, get involved in this. If you need a pen, raise your hand and some of the ushers have pens back here. If you need a pen to write down some of these notes, go ahead and raise your hand. And Pharaoh will be glad to give you some of those uh, a pen. There's some over there. Just keep your hand raised and he'll give you some pens. Thank you, Pharaoh. Secondly, the sign reveals the compassion of God for his people. The compassion of God for his people. Remember in Mark chapter 6, it's the same story. From a different perspective, he adds some details, he leaves out details, but it's the same story in chapter 6 of Mark. Listen to chapter 6, verse 34, as Jesus looks at all the people. The Bible says that Jesus saw the multitude and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus saw the needs of his people. And seeing the need of his people, his heart was moved by compassion. Does Jesus Christ, does God the Father, does the Holy Spirit still identify needs in us today? Has the compassion of God for our needs dwindled? Is it different today than it was then? By no means. As God felt compassion and began to be moved by compassion to minister to the desperate needs of his people in those days, God is the same Malachi 3, 6. I do not change. And as he did it, then he will do it in your life and in my life. He will be the same God to us as he was then and he ever has been and ever shall be. So he felt compassion. You see, this miracle reminded them of the words of Ezekiel. Ezekiel the prophet is writing to the nation of Israel during the time of the Babylonian captivity. And he is uh, writing the word of God. And listen to what Ezekiel says in chapter 34, 11 to 15. And as you listen to these words, remember the, the activity of Jesus Feeding the people. Remember what he is doing and listen to these words which they would have remembered. And this is what the prophet says. For thus saith the Lord God, I myself will search my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep. So I will care for my sheep and I will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and a gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel. God is saying, I will feed my people. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's feeding his people as God Almighty, Yahweh himself, has declared in the Old Testament. I will do it. And here is Jesus doing it. And they are seeing and experiencing and thinking and wondering and being captured by this activity. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in a good pasture and their grazing ground would be on the mountain heights of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest, saith the Lord God. Think 
what must have been going through their hearts and their minds as they were experiencing this monumental work of God's compassion. They would have remembered Psalm 23. What does Psalm 23 say? The Lord who? Yahweh is my shepherd. They would have remembered that psalm. They would have remembered so much. And in all of that, they would have come, been coming to see God is once again moving by His compassion upon us. God is among us again. No wonder they got up and tried to take Jesus by force to make Him their king. You see, throughout the Old Testament, the compassion and the loving kindness of God, these two words which had the same general meaning, is a dominant theme within the Old Testament. The great compassion and hesed, the loving kindness of God. Eighty times the word compassion is described having been contributed to God in the Old Testament. And over 170 times the word loving kindness as it concerns God's character and work in the people's lives. Remember Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord God. Remember, Moses says, let me just see your glory. I just want to see your glory. And the Lord hides him in the cleft of the rock. And he says, I can only show you my hinder parts. And I will pass before you. And he says, here I am. This is who I am. This is who I am. And this is what I want you to know about me. Essentially, I am the Lord, the Lord God. Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and in truth. So this sign shows the compassion of our God. Number three, this sign reveals the divine provision of God's compassion for his people. You see, compassion is not a static feeling. Compassion is a feeling of identification. And it's a feeling to desire to help and to reach out. But compassion also has with it not only the desire to reach out and to help, but also the ability to accomplish what is needed for the one to whom you have a showing compassion. So you see, compassion is not just something, I feel compassion on you. Go and be nice and have a good day. That's not compassion. Compassion is when we identify the needs of others and God moves our heart to reach out to them. And then he gives us the specific ability and the pragmatic activities to reach in and deal with the issues. That's what compassion is. It is the lively activity of God's favorable grace in our lives, ministering his gospel and his life for our needs and for his glory. God's compassion provides. God's compassion anticipates the need. Look at verses 5 and 6. Well, how does God's compassion work in my life? How does it work in your life? How many of you, now come on, let's be honest. How many of us, when we get into trouble, or afraid that God was not prepared for this. I mean, really, how many of us feel that way sometimes? Haven't we ever been in a stew and we go to God and we're worried about he's not prepared? You know how you know you, God is not prepared? Because of the way you pray. You've got to tell God all about it. 
And you got to tell God what's going to happen and how it's going to happen and when it's going to happen and what it's going to do this and what's going to happen. You got to tell God everything about it, because if you don't tell God everything about it, how can he come help you? I mean, come on, we got a God who doesn't know nothing, so we got to spend half the time. Well, it's okay, I think, to be explaining to the Lord. I don't think that's wrong, but I think the attitude is that God doesn't know. This has just happened. Where are you? Please come help me. Look, the compassion of God, the provision of God anticipates the need. Let's look at verses 5 and verses 6. Let me go back to John chapter 6 myself. Give me a moment. Hmm, here I am. There's a need. None of the disciples know there's going to be a need. I don't know what need I have from moment to moment. And you don't know what need you have. And no one knows anybody else's needs around here from moment to moment. But listen to these verses 5 and 6. Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing a large crowd was coming to him, said, Hey, Philip. We're going to need some bread. Where are we going to get this stuff? Where are we going to get bread? Jesus already knows there's a need. He recognizes it and he's anticipating it. This he was saying to test him, for he knew himself what he was intending to do. Jesus is ready. You see, even before the people appeared, Jesus is ready. How? Well, because he's the son of God, don't you see? No, that's not how. Jesus has emptied himself of the use of his divine prerogatives. And he wouldn't have known any more than anybody else knows. He is now the submitted and humble and obedient Son of God, living as a holy, pure, innocent man. But living in such a way that every word that God the Father through the Holy Spirit is speaking to Jesus and every inclination of the Father's heart that is being revealed to Jesus by the Holy Spirit and every issue of do this and don't do that and go here and say that and know this and I withhold this knowledge from you. I don't know when I'm coming back. And all of these issues, he is living totally under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has said to Jesus, there is a crowd coming and you're going to have to feed them. Why do I emphasize that? Because, you see, we are to be living the same way. We are to be believers who are walking with the Lord so well that whatever is going to happen in my life or in your life, we are ready for it some kind of way by faith. Amen? Let us not be thrown off by the things of the world, but let us walk in a way that even though we may never know the specifics from time to time or any of the details, and we may know them all or whatever it is, that we are a people who are ready to walk and minister and receive and give by the Holy Spirit's instruction and presence and power in our life. There's no need for us at any point and at any time to ever be thrown off by anything whatsoever. Can you say amen? There's no need for this. Because you see, we have the same Spirit of God who lived in Jesus, who now lives in us. Do you believe that? You see, God's compassion encompasses both sides of the needs. Listen to these words from Isaiah 52:12. For the Lord will go before you. Hallelujah! And the Lord of this God of Israel will also be what? Your rear guard. God is in front. God is in back. God is on the sides. God is above. God is below. And God is within. What shall we fear? 
What comes against us that we can't be ready for it? How shall we not now, therefore, be conquerors in all things? Amen? We have a God whose compassion anticipates the need. You have a need in your life or any needs if you don't. If you have needs, then how do you know you're anticipating them with God's compassion? It depends on how you're handling them, complaining or praising. Now, my wife, Jean, will tell you that I am absolutely the best in this area of not complaining. Yeah, that's it. Good. You need to laugh at that. That needed to be an uproaring laugh. Our complaining, our attitude shows us to the extent of am I operating in faith in this great God of ours. God's compassion not only anticipates, but it meets the needs. Look at verses 9 to 13. There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many? But at least there's somebody here who has something. Okay. Jesus said, had the people sit down. Now, there was a lot of grass in the place. So the men sat down, 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise, also of the fish as much as they had wanted. And they were filled, and he said to the disciples, gather up the fragments so that nothing is lost. And so they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. You see, the compassion of God meets the need. He anticipates the need, and he what? He meets the need. Jesus had the people to sit down. Why? You see, the need was the opportunity for the people to know who God is through the meeting of their needs. Every need in our life should be viewed as one more thing God is going to use to show me how great He is. Amen? We really need to kind of get a mindset different about these things. I realize it's a struggle. I'm just like everybody else. And so how does God meet the need? First of all, we must be settled down. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He what? What's the next verse? Say it again. He does what? He makes me to relax, lie down. He leads me first to be in a posture of trusting, obedient, receiving. Okay, I have it under control. Just sit down, relax, and you trust me. You remember Matthew 28? I'm sorry, 11:28. He says, Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are laboring and are heavy laden, all these issues. Come unto me, and I will give you rest. You see, he himself is our rest. And when he says to them, sit down, he is saying to them, enter into that relationship and trust in me that will provide for your needs. For Jesus is the Lord Sabaoth. He is the Lord who is our very resting in God in a trusting and obedient way. What needs does Jesus meet? He meets our basic needs. What are they? Well, I think at least there are three things here. What are those basic needs? First of all, I'm sorry, what are the needs? First of all, it's our basic need. 
We're not talking about whims and desires. And I need a new car because the other one's six months old and I don't like the color anymore. We're talking about real needs here. And we don't have time to go into all of that, but hopefully you understand what this means. Holy Spirit revealed needs. Your basic need. Bread is one of the most basic foods in all the world. I didn't realize how important it was to eat and to worry about food until we went to Russia in 1995. And I was alone in Irkutsk, Russia, out in Siberia near Mongolia and, you know, helping with a little church out there. And I'm living with two Russian, um, uh, what do you call them, translators. And we're having to get food every day because in Russia you don't buy stuff and just... You know, it's not pasteurized and homogenized and injected. It's just there. You go out and there's the meat hanging in the uh, back of the truck, all cut up and the flies all over the place. They're cutting up the meat and, hand, you know, that's the stuff. You get all this bread, you know. It's just a real different kind of an atmosphere. And you're buying this food. You're hoping, of course, it doesn't kill you. And I had never experienced worrying about, are we going to have enough food tonight? We had to go buy food every day. This wasn't a hotel we were living in. I wasn't on tour Living there four and a half weeks like this, really, I had never experienced worrying about and being preoccupied with eating. I mean, I'm not that big. I never experienced this. But those people in these days in what, three quarters of the world, one of the most basic issues in their life is, are we even going to get a meal? And of course, it speaks of their great spiritual need. So Jesus, the divine Son of God, is the only one who can and who does, through the gospel, meet our daily, our very basic need. Sorry. The second need is our daily need. Our daily need. We need God's provision, presence, activity, work on a daily basis. Give us this day our daily bread. This is why we emphasize so much... Reading and praying on a daily basis. Now, that doesn't mean that if you missed yesterday's reading, you're going to wind up going to hell and everything's going to fall apart in your life. But basically, it means be consistent in your reading the word and in your praying and in your spiritual devotions. Be consistent on a daily basis, on a regular, consistent basis. I don't know how many of our needs could be met purely by Adopting obedient hearts in spiritual devotions. I don't know how many needs could be met. I would dare say that there are a lot of needs in our lives which simply are not being met and are simply aggravating us because we are not daily bread people. We're not daily bread people as we are. Some of you are and some of you are not. I won't ask for a show of hands, but if I were to ask how many of you read the Bible more than two times, uh, you know, two times this week, one time or three times, we get a show of hands probably in most of it. We need to be daily bread people. The compassion of God is available to us on a daily and regular time period. There's nothing that can happen today that God is not available and able and ready to meet that need today. So we don't have to worry about tomorrow's need. Remember, Jesus said, you got enough problems for today, honey child. You just worry about today and trust me for today. We need to eat on a daily basis. How many of you basically don't ever eat on a daily basis? Anybody here? No, of course, we all eat regularly. 
Let us be a spiritual people like that. Amen. To receive the regular diet of the compassion of God. And third, what kind of need? It's undeserved needs. Undeserved. I mean, this is undeserved. I love so much what Matt read this morning. Do you remember what he read from? What book did he read from? Titus chapter 3. Go back and read those scriptures. Those are great scriptures. Titus chapter 3. Paul is just can't get over the fact of what God has done in his life. And he never shuts up yelling about it and preaching it. Why? Because it's singularly the greatest news that man has ever heard and will ever hear. It's undeserved provision. You see, the people of God receive, not because they need it, but because God is merciful. Don't you see? It's God who is merciful, not our needs that is driving God. It's the mercy, the goodness of God that is being revealed here. Through the meeting of the needs. So don't ever think, because you have a need... Therefore, God better come to your attention, honey child. Don't you think that way. Don't fall for those kinds of gospels. It's the mercy of God that is being declared here through the meeting of the need. You see, the provision of God is always on the basis of His grace because of our complete inability to provide for ourselves. Remember what I said, give us this day our daily bread. What word did I use? What word is that first? What? What word? Give. What does the word give mean? Grace. It means I need to receive something. That means that I don't have it unless I get it from you. That means I am unable. I am needy. I am helpless. Give, give, give. Why does God do this? Because we are absolutely incapable and also unwilling to meet our own needs. You remember this word from Isaiah 55. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Just come on down. And you who have no money, come. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You can't work it up. You can't pray it in. You can't read it in. You can't evangelize it in. You can't alpha it in. You can't Bible study it in. It's to be received freely of our ability to be able to earn it. He says, come and buy if you don't have any money. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Obviously, no cost to you, but at the supreme cost to the Son of God. Fourth, what does this sign show us? This sign, sign reveals the divine means of God's provision for His people. You see, God does provide for our needs, but He does it through means. He just doesn't anymore start dropping out fish and quail or bread or whatever, oysters and shrimp and meatloaf and all that from heaven. He just isn't doing that anymore. (laughs) He just isn't doing that anymore. There is a principle here that we as a church need to make sure we get. Let's look at verses 5 to 12. And I know I have reiterated some of these, but it's for a particular purpose. So let's look at these verses in relation to God's means of compassion, of getting uh, his compassion to us. Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing a large crowd was coming to him, he said to Philip, he turned to somebody. He says, where are we going to get bread to feed all these folks? He was testing him. He knew what he was going to do. 
And Philip says, well, I don't know. We only have a couple of hundred bucks here. And if we go out and buy bread, 15,000 people, a couple of hundred bucks, everybody gets about a pinch of the loaf. You know? And then the other disciple, Andrew, Simon Brothers, Peter, Peter said, I know a little boy over there. He's got a couple of, you know, fish and some bread over there. So Jesus said, okay, bring it on in. They take the bread. He blesses it. He blesses the fish and he distributes it through the disciples. Isn't that what happens in those verses? You see, Jesus chose to feed the people through the means of his disciples. Did you notice? Look at verse five again. What does it say? Where are, what, you know what pronouns are? Remember pronouns? You, me, I, him, us, we, they. You remember those things? Remember the plural pronoun, we, us? Remember nominative, we, objective, thems? You remember that? Well, we get a we here. What does Jesus say? Where or what? We! Can you imagine Philip says, what you mean we? What I can, you know, what, I mean, come on, there's 15, 20,000 people here, and the Lord says, uh, Bill, where are we going to get some food? <laughs> Jesus, had you told me we were going to have an evangelistic service like this, we would have gotten Pete Shepherdstein in here, and we'd have had more food than anybody ever would have wanted. What you mean we? You notice he didn't say where or where am I going to get the food? Or where are you going to get the food? He doesn't say, I alone. He doesn't say, you alone. He says, we together. Do you see it? Extremely important. Little bitty words meaning so much. Where are we going to get the food? You see, Jesus, the disciples become Jesus' fellow workers in the gospel of compassion. 1 Corinthians 3, 9, Paul says, we are God's fellow workers or co-laborers, your Bible may say. Leading and following, giving and receiving the activity of the entire church. You see, in today's economy, the church now is God's principal means of ministering his compassion to the world. If we don't, he won't. Unless he supersedes what he's been doing. The church, all of us, not just the preacher and a couple of weirdos who have a lot more religion than most people. It's all of us together. You see, today, God is so loving the world. How many of us know God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son? He is so loving the world, but only through the means of the church of Jesus Christ. Don't be looking to somebody else. Be standing in front of the mirror today and tomorrow and say, Lord, how am I going to be a co-worker with you in the compassion of God being displayed and distributed for the needs of the world, mostly for the display of your gospel through those needs? And when you look at verse 5, notice there are about three different responses here. Remember Philip? Philip's like all of us, or most of us. You want to buy bread? Well, let me see what we're going to do. We have to do this evangelistic program. We're going to have to reach out here. We want to have a new program over here. So Philip looks at the natural 
impediments. He looks at the natural landscape. You're supposed to do that. That's okay. That's correct. Jesus says, hey, take a look at the clouds. And when it's cloudy, you know it's going to rain. It's okay to be looking at the natural and making assessments of what you have. Jesus says, count the cost. Look at the natural assessments. Look at what you can do. Look what you can't do. Look at all the things around you. But Philip failed in that's all that he did. He didn't go any further than the natural, don't you see? It's not that looking at the natural is unspiritual. I want to be spiritually minded, and it doesn't matter anything about what happened around me. I know the Holy Spirit will do something. He won't. He just won't, for the most part. Look around. What has God given to us naturally in the church? But then look beyond that. Philip didn't go beyond that. But look at Andrew. You see, Andrew saw the same need. He saw the same. I mean, he probably knows we only have a couple of hundred bucks in the treasury. But you see, Andrew saw the same things and the same opportunities and the same natural whatever's out there. But he saw them through the eyes of Jesus' ability. Look at verse 7. Sorry, 8 and 9 for Andrew. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said, there's a lad over there. There's a way this can be done. It looks difficult. He only has a couple of things in his pocket, you know. A couple of fish sticking out of there and a couple of pieces of bread. But, you know, I, I know God. Jesus, I've seen you before. Jesus, I was there when you turned the water into wine. Jesus, I saw you open those eyes. Jesus, I saw you, that crippled man. Jesus, I've seen you before. Jesus, I've recognized your work before. I've experienced it before. Here we have another detail that you can overcome with your great grace. I've seen it before. I know you can do it again. So here's all what we have. I don't know how you're going to do it, but I know one thing. You who have done it before will do it again. Amen? Let us have that attitude about what's happening in our lives. So when the enemy of our soul comes stomping across the front lawn of our house, we can say you will not have dominion over me because as Jesus conquered you in the wilderness and conquered you at the cross, you will never have dominion in my life for even a moment. Amen? There's no temptation, no issue that the Son of God, the reigning supreme Holy One Himself cannot deal with. He's done it before. Do we have the faith to say, there's someone, there's a way, there's something he will do. Look at the third person, the lad. A little old boy with barley loaves. Barley's a cheap bread. The most insignificant person out there becomes the most significant thing in Jesus' abilities, in Jesus' hands. How many of you think that you are really insignificant as far as your gifting and your abilities and your presence and your contributions to the church? If you think you are insignificant, stop looking at your insignificance because you are. You just are. Remember Paul in 1 Corinthians? You don't have very much going for you. But we are in the hands of the one who divides the seas Brings down the rain, brings down the manna, displays His grace. What is insignificant in His hands? Everything is significant as only we will say, Here am I. I am available by faith. Amen? You see, God is not looking for what you have. He's looking for who you are. 
that a man like me could be up here teaching or preaching is absolutely, in my mind, scandalous. It is scandalous. It's a good thing you're way over there. It's scandalous. It truly is. But God takes the, the insignificant of this world, the ones who ain't got nothing going for them, as far as the work of God is concerned, and transforms it into the mighty deeds of a holy God. You see, the availability of the lad who had nothing to offer but his poverty. And God takes that poverty of nothing and turns it in to a great miracle of everything. I must move along. The sign also reveals the divine result of God's compassion for his people. Aren't you glad God doesn't give the way many give? How many of you <laughs> would like for God to give to you the way you give to God? Come on, raise your hand. I want God to give to me just on the same basis I give to God. Ooh. Aren't you glad God's compassion and mercy is way beyond what we want to release into his hand? Amen? Aren't you glad it's not a 50-50 exchange, this mess about 50-50 stuff, partnership with God? <laughs> And no partnership here. God's the king. I'm walking with him. I'm a servant. Lavish grace. Lavish compassion. Verses 12 and 13. The people ate as much as they wanted. They got filled and they have 12 baskets full. This is lavish grace. The people were filled and the disciples were fed. John 10, 10. The thief cometh, but I have come that you might have life and that you might get a couple of dribbles here and there. Mercy drops round us are falling, but for the showers we plead. Who wants a bunch of mercy drops? I want the shower on my life. I want the shower on your life. And we want the shower of the mercy of God and the compassion of God. Let us see that our God is a lavish God. And let us be a people who give lavishly of ourselves and who we are and faith and obedience and submission. Let us also be a people who are lavish in Christ for His purposes. Amen? I have some other references there. You can read them. My God shall supply all your needs. But God will do abundantly above all. You read those references and see how lavish the grace of God is. Also, what is the result of God's compassion? Eternal compassion. Eternal compassion. He says, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, you believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I'm going there to prepare a place for you that where I am there, you will be also. This is not only a temporary compassion that's lavish. It is a lavishly eternal compassion in our lives. Amen. This compassion is never going to cease as long as we are before the throne of God. And that is going to be forever. 
You see, the compassion of God doesn't stop when we die. It just proliferates into its eternal full significance and power in heaven as we are maintained before the throne of God in the person of Jesus Christ, the eternal God-man who has risen with the scars in His body to ever show that this is grace, this is grace, this is grace that keeps you here and maintains you forever. That's why Jesus is a man who ever lives before the throne of God on our behalf. And we are maintained before God Himself, even in heaven, by the grace of God through the death and resurrection of our Savior, the great grace of the gospel. That's why we're going to be there. We ain't going to be there held because we are innocent, because we ain't never been innocent. We're never going to be innocent. We are not guilty. We are now living in the innocent one and being maintained by His eternal innocence before the Father Himself. Six, the sign reveals the divine purpose of God's compassion for His people. In Canada last week, we heard a preacher say, The purpose of the church is to change the world. Let me say very calmly. The purpose of the church is not to change the world. It's to challenge the world. Through the gospel. It's not to change the world. Did you notice John 6.15? Jesus could have changed the world. They want to make him what? King. If Jesus is here to change the world, remember before Pilate, if I were here to change the world, my disciples would have beat you people bad. I'd have called down angels. Jesus is not here to change the world. He is here to save the church and to cause the church to be salt and light upon the face of the earth that they may know there is a God in heaven. It's to challenge the world with the gospel. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works, God's compassion, and that they may glorify your Father who is in heaven. Not that they may be changed to be a better world. Don't make the gospel what it is not. Can the church, does the effect of the church change the world? Sometimes yes. Well, it always is going to change the world. Can it change the world for good? Sometimes yes. And sometimes it can make the world even meaner than it is. You just look at the building of our building right now. Those neighbors are not pleased with us. There is an impact of the gospel here. This is an impact of the gospel. It's the gospel going out that is a challenge to hearts. And they don't even understand what it is. The seventh sign is the divine cost of God's compassion for His people. Listen, all that God did, all that God does... All that God will do, every word of Jesus, every action of Jesus, every thought of Jesus Christ, everything is as the result of the coming cross, and everything not only anticipates the cross, but reveals the work of God through the cross and the resurrection. It is the cost to God to be compassionate to us. The cross is the cost of God 
to be compassionate to us. This is not light for God. This is the eternal cost of God Himself to send His great Son to die in our place. And because of our sin, for the wrath of God to be removed so that the mercy of God and the forgiveness and the acceptance of God may be able to come through now that the wrath of God has been removed through the shedding of the blood. And the resurrection now opens the door wide for all of those who would say yes to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But the cross is the cost of the great compassion of God. Please remember that. The divine sign of compassion is at the greatest of the costs. It's not cheap. This is the greatest of the costs. Let's stand together. Lakeview Christian Center, let's be the church that clearly and compellingly displays God's compassion. Husbands and wives, compassionate to one another. Set aside your sin. Stop sinning. Be compassionate to one another as God has been compassionate to you. And stop ignoring and flaunting the grace of God and saying to the grace of God, I don't want you in this area. I can do it without you. Let us stop denying and working against the grace of God. Children and adults, let's be compassionate with one another. Let's be compassionate with the less fortunate in the world, with our neighbors, with even the neighbors at Lakeview Christian Center building. Let's be compassionate to those folks showing the power of the grace of God that they are not even understanding and is working in them a thing that is causing them to do what they're doing. But the compassion of our God can overcome it. How do I know that? Because everybody in here who is saved has been saved by the power of God's compassion. Anyone not saved in here by the power of something else? Why are you saved? Because God is merciful. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. Ephesians 2.4 Why live this way? So that in the ages to come, in the eternal ages, God might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. In order that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church, the means of God's compassion, to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenlies. Let Satan shake and sweat! Because we're going to be a people of God's compassion and Satan and no dominion and no hell and no need, no trouble, no attack, no sin, no nothing is greater than the compassion of God for us in our lives. Practical thing. Let me suggest that you make a list of all the compassionate work of God in your life. Make a list. One, two, three, four. And post it somewhere. And when things go bad, run to the list. When things go well, run to the list. When you're not sure, look at the list. And know this. As He did it before, Malachi 3.6, My God does not what? Change, I am the Lord, I change not. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Look at the list. And as He's done it for the least one of these, He will do it for every single one. The compassion of God. Church, let us be encouraged to be grace-motivated and grace-empowered to go 
and do likewise. Thank you.